today's episode is brought to you by the Academy for Virtual Teaching. The past two years have taught us how important virtual technology is to our lives. We can make connections with our friends and develop new skills and hobbies using a computer or even a phone. Isn't it amazing? Many business owners and creative craft and art teachers were able to save their livelihoods through virtual workshops, both on demand and live via Zoom. I tell you what, so many people have fallen in love with taking virtual classes. Online workshops are here to stay. If you love to make things and love to teach people how to make things, but have been overwhelmed thinking of all the equipment and technological know-how you need... I invite you to check out the Academy for Virtual Teaching. It can be so much easier than you think. There are a community of virtual teachers who help teach, lift, and encourage each other as they become more proficient, professional, and yes, profitable virtual teachers. So go to academyforvirtualteaching.com and you'll be surprised. Thank you so much, Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now, here's the show. Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about beading with my guest, Jill Wiseman. Jill lived a traditional eight-to-five corporate existence until a chance encounter with beads in 2001 changed everything, and she was mesmerized. She found her local bead store and started taking every class offered to learn new skills, including stringing, wire work, and her latest specialty, which is bead weaving. Before long, Jill couldn't contain her beady joy another moment and had to share the world of beads with others. She became a full-time bead weaving jewelry designer and teacher in 2004 and had the pleasure of teaching at national bead shows like Bead and Button and Bead Fest, as well as traveling to bead stores and bead societies all over the country for classes full of laughter and bead learning for over a decade. She's the author of Jill Wiseman's Beautiful Beaded Ropes and was honored to be chosen as one of Beadwork Magazine's Designers of the Year for 2013. In 2013, Jill started a YouTube channel, which now boasts more than 170,000 subscribers, where she educates beaters around the world with videos, showing techniques, tips, and projects. After the YouTube channel launched, viewer demand for bead supplies influenced Jill to open an online bead store, which has now grown into a 6,000-foot a square foot warehouse facility with four employees. Beading has taken her from coast to coast and internationally to places like Canada and the Czech Republic, Italy, and China. But the rest of the time, Jill makes her home in Austin, Texas with her mother, who is employee number one, as well as two spoiled dogs who only occasionally eat the beads. Jill Weisman, welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I think the Craft Industry Alliance is an incredible resource, and so it's uh, very honoring for me 
for you guys to ask me to be on the podcast. I was so jazzed when you joined way back when. I was like, yeah, it's <laughs> Jill Weissman. Um, because I love your YouTube videos. And why don't we start there? Talk a little bit about the genesis of your YouTube channel and kind of how it's progressed over time. Because I think there's a learning curve with YouTube. Definitely. Um so 2013 was kind of an odd year for me, um, even though that's the year that my book was published in the industry. And that was also the year that I was uh, designer of the year for Beadwork Magazine, which means that I had projects in every issue of that magazine for that year. Um, I think the availability of all those free patterns through my book and through the magazine uh, influenced less business for me that year. Um, so my business was down by like half that year. And so I was kind of trying to figure out, okay, I need to kind of diversify my income stream. And I was trying to figure out where that would come from. Um, and it occurred to me that I had recently decided to try to learn how to knit, uh, mainly because I needed some kind of creative outlet that I wasn't in charge. <laughs> uh, I needed something kind of mindless that I didn't have to be thinking about, well, how am I going to teach this and how am I going to write the instructions for this? Um, and so I had gone to YouTube to learn how to knit. And there was a particular channel that I thought was the quality of their videos was incredible. Um, and it occurred to me that that setup would be a really good way to teach beading. So uh, I kind of dug around in this lady's channel. It was Stacy Perry of Very Pink Knits. Um, and I dug around in her channel and I'll be darned if she's not from Austin also. So then I started digging, digging a little farther and she had credit to, um, a production company and I thought, ah, no wonder her videos are so good. So I cold emailed her production company and I said, here's who I am in the bead world. And I'd love to do something like what Stacy Perry is doing. Um, what? what is the process for doing that? How much is it going to cost me to get the videos made? You know, um, that kind of, you know, information I was, I was looking for. And to make a long story short, a week later, he and I uh, had a meeting, we created a deal and we start, we signed a contract within 10 days of that initial email. And I started the YouTube channel four weeks later. Um, and at the time, my intent was that the YouTube videos were going to drive demand for online sales of my kits and patterns because I didn't sell any just plain beads at that point. It was all just my designs. And, um, and it did indeed do that. We, I was very lucky in that I benefited from that production channel, production companies, um, growing Stacy Perry's YouTube channel. So they kind of had a formula for how to make that happen. So I, my channel grew a lot faster than I expected it to. Um, the other variable that was different from when they were growing Stacy Perry's channel is that I came to it with an already established name in the industry. Uh, I was already one of the top designers in the bead weaving um, segment of the, of the jewelry world. And so I already had this established following. And then the way the YouTube channel grew so quickly is that we had an incredible amount of content. We were releasing 
two videos a week for the for probably the first three or four months. And when you're doing something like that, and there's a lot of engagement with uh, comments and likes and subscriptions to your channel, the YouTube al algorithms pay attention to that. And if I look at the graph of the views on my channel from that those early months, you can literally see the day that the YouTube algorithms started paying attention to my channel and saying, hey, there's something going on over here. We're going to start showing this video on other people's channels. So, you know, it's going to pop up as suggestions. And all of a sudden, there's an incredible spike in my viewership. And from then on, it's just been pretty much nonstop growth. Was it a risk financially to hire out the video filming and production when you really didn't know if it was going to work? Because another option, right, would be to try to DIY it. Right. And I did consider the DIY route. Um, my concern was that I didn't, I was already working as hard as I could uh, with designing new things. And so I just didn't feel like I had the time to not only learn these new, you know, techniques, the, 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 the sound and the lighting and the camera stuff and then the editing. And I just, I didn't know how I was going to split myself out to do that. Uh, I have an interesting arrangement with my production company. Uh, it actually didn't cost me a dime <laughs> to start out. Uh, and I think that this is a really good business model for people out there, uh, if, they, if you can find somebody who's willing to work within this model, they do all of my filming for me, all the equipment belongs to them, uh, and they do all the editing, post-production editing for me. And the original agreement was that they would receive a percentage of sales on kits that were directly attributable to the video. So if I did a video on how to do this particular kit, they would get a percentage back on those sales. Um, we, over time, we have adjusted that uh, because what has happened is now I have this giant online store and what I sell is so much more than just kits. And honestly, all of this is directly attributable to YouTube. <laughs> you know, I mean, this wouldn't have happened without YouTube. And so I felt like I needed to cut them in on all sales. So now they get a small percentage of my entire uh, website sales. Wow, that's so interesting. What did, I have not heard of um, an arrangement like that, but it aligns their motivation to create videos that will be appealing to an audience and and will you know be engaging because if they do, then, you know, they're going to get an increased, you know, amount of payment. Yeah, it's I, I love it because they're basically bought into the business. Um, so they have as much motivation as I do to make really good content. That is so interesting. Thank you for sharing those details. That's that's fascinating. So let's walk back a little bit. Um, where did you grow up? And I know you mentioned your mom in the intro, and she's an important person in your business. Um, but what what did your parents do for work when you were growing up? You know what, I grew up with a single mom. Um, my father actually died when I was two and a half years old. Um, he was 26. And so he died 
very young uh, in his sleep. And my mom had to be, she was, she was seven months pregnant with my brother. And uh, so all of a sudden at 23, she's a widow and with two kids to support. So uh, I grew up quite poor, but also with this really incredible role model because she was, she managed to put herself through college. Uh, it took her eight years because she would have to, you know, do a couple of semesters of school and then stop for a while and work full time and then for, you know, a year or so and then go back. And, and so it took her eight years, but she managed to go get through school uh, with no financial help from her family at all. Um, and, you know, she's been such an inspiration to me my whole life because when you're in that kind of situation, you sink or you swim. And she's definitely, you know, got herself out of that, that space, um, educated herself, raised two reasonably intelligent adults <laughs> and, you know, really raised her status in life and um, has been nothing but supportive of me and this building this business. This business would not exist if it weren't for her. Uh, it was a probably four to five years before I was making enough money that I actually could have supported myself on my own. Uh, so living with my mom in those years and her supporting me allowed me the ability to figure out how to make a living in this business. Wow, that's a really inspiring story. Um, I'm so like inspired by your mom's hard work and um, tenacity. That's fantastic. And so when you graduated from high school, what did you want to do? And, and what did you think you were going to do in, you know, as a profession? I thought I was going to be a lawyer. Um, I, I was evidently really good at arguing. <laughs> and uh, so I went to college with that intent. I double majored in English and history with the intent of going to law school. But somewhere in there, I worked at a law firm for a while. And I really, that was the first time I really thought, okay, well, where is my place in the legal world? Um, and I knew that it wasn't going to be prosecuting. And I didn't really feel comfortable doing defense work. So that leaves corporate work, which is really not too exciting. Uh, and so I just, I really couldn't figure out like what kind of law I would want to practice. Plus working for the law firm, I realized how hard those people worked and really they weren't very happy people. So that kind of dissuaded me from that whole plan. Um, and at that point I was really aimless for a long time. I just, I knew that there was something out there that I was meant to do and I couldn't find it. Um, for a while, I thought that I would go to grad school and become for library science and become a librarian. Um, I had a couple of college professors, two professors independently, pulled me inside and said, we really think you should become a college professor. Uh, and I considered that and researched that, but I really wasn't ready to commit to secondary ed to another level of education. You know, I really would kind of have to get my PhD to do that. And I, I wasn't ready to commit to doing that. Um, so I really felt underemployed for a really long time because I just, I didn't know what that thing was that was going to light my fire. 
Mm. And were you artistic? I mean, now I would consider you to be an artist. Um, did you have, and you said you had, you know, wanted to learn to knit. Did, did you like to make things with your hands? I always kind of liked to. I was never particularly good at anything. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, even from a young age, I would do, you know, those latch hook kits. Uh, I remember there was uh, an embroidery um, business that was not too far from where I grew up. And so probably about 10 or 11, I went and I took a couple of classes at this embroidery uh, store. Um, but that wasn't really quite it. My mom used to crochet. So I crocheted a little bit, but I never really, that didn't really catch fire with me. Uh, so I was always interested. But again, I just hadn't found the right thing, the right medium for myself. Um, and even today, I would actually consider myself um, only an a, a slightly above average designer. Um, I can do it. Uh, the really more complex things, I really have to think hard about. I mean, it's it's hard work for me to kind of come up with those really elaborate pieces. Um, so one of the things that I love about YouTube is that it has brought me back to an audience that I feel more comfortable with because I think my strength is more explaining and teaching mm -hmm. and inspiring. And so with YouTube, I can bring that skill level back to a beginner to intermediate level. And that's, those people are the ones that I seem to connect the most with. And what's interesting too, right, is that that's the largest market. You know, I mean, exactly. the number of people who are advanced beaters um, has got to be fairly small worldwide versus the number of people who are interested in beating and would like to learn some basics, maybe some intermediate level you know, projects and things like that. That's a much broader audience. And so I also love the idea that there's a place for everyone. You know, if you're not the best artist and you know that about yourself, there's still a place for you in this industry. You can be a good teacher, a good writer. There's so many other ways to do this. So that's reassuring, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what I think been my biggest growth process through the last 20 years of, you know, figuring out what my place is in this, this industry is learning about myself and learning what those strengths and weaknesses are and how to use those to my advantage. And um, that is obviously a nonstop learning curve. Uh, but and it's and it's a slow one because you kind of I mean, it's not comfortable to say I'm not the best designer out there. <laughs> you know, you want to be. Uh, but knowing what I'm really good at is the, is the flip side to that. And that feels really good. Yeah. And I think when you're self-employed, um, you know, it is, as you said, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's a, it's a long term learning process about yourself. And as you said, it can be pretty uncomfortable at times, yeah. but, um, but that is the work of it. And so that's, that's really revelatory. So thank you for that. I want to take a moment to talk with our sponsor, Lyric Kennard from the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Hello, I'm Lyric Montgomery Kennard, and I'm here with the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And I hear you have an exciting masterclass coming up. We do. At the turn of the year, 
In January and February, we have a couple classes I'm really excited about. One that's open to everybody is Virtual Teaching 101, learning the very, very basics of what equipment you need and what platforms you can use to turn your live classes into virtual classes, whether they're on demand or live via Zoom. Wonderful. And then that will lead into a masterclass. If you really want to do this, even if you're a little bit experienced, this master course walks you through every single step of the way. We give you everything you need. We talk about all different kinds of equipment. You might not need to buy as much as you think you do. It's not as scary. We show you how to use the equipment. We show you how to film and edit pre-recorded video. We show you how to use Zoom. We have practice sessions with Zoom so that teachers can get together and figure out the equipment with each other instead of doing it in front of students live, right? And we go through everything, including contracts and administration and organization, even how to organize and set up a new virtual class. It's really a course that takes you through every step of the way, everything you need. Um, Some of my students have said, whoa, this is like a graduate level course. So if you're interested in virtual teaching, you would really, really benefit from this masterclass. We are all about making money here. We want your profession to be profitable. We want you to be able to do this without adding a ton of overload to your work life. We're solopreneurs, right? And there's only only so many hours we can put in. So we want your virtual teaching to be scalable, to be manageable. We talk about work-life balance and, and how to make this business really work for you. What an incredible resource. That's awesome. And so tell us where we can go to access this. Go to academyforvirtualteaching.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lyric. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much to the Academy for Virtual Teaching. And now back to my conversation with Jill. Um, So tell us about this time. It sounds like you were working some kind of a corporate job and you encountered a bead store. So tell us that story. (laughs) Yeah, I was working as a high-level administrative assistant for a high-tech company. Um, I was bored out of my mind, but I was making a lot of money. So, you know, trade-offs, right? And one day, my mother and I drove down to Houston and went to the Houston International Quilt Festival. Oh, yeah. So neither of us quilt, but we love the art of quilting. So we thought, let's have a day out. We're going to go look at the beautiful quilts and stuff. So we're walking up and down the aisles, and there was an aisle that was called embellishments, and it was basically all beads. And it was my first time seeing beads like this. And uh, I was just... My heart started racing pitter patter and I just, I was in love with, you know, the colors and the textures and, and all of the combination possibilities. And I just, we must've spent two hours walking down this one aisle. Um, Along the way, there was a booth of a woman who was selling small bead weaving kits. They were like little um, pins, lapel pin kind of things. 
And that was the first time I'd seen bead weaving. And so I ended up buying a kit. And the other thing that I bought that day, I went at the very end of the aisle, there was a huge booth that was all seed beads. And now, mind you, I know nothing about beads, right? I still managed to buy beads <laughs> from this booth. And I actually have the receipt from that very first bead purchase I ever made. And I have it framed on my wall. <laughs> and I had really good taste because I bought like a tube of beads that was like $23. I don't know what it was. They must have been like gold plated or something. <laughs> but, but I went straight for the good stuff. <laughs> Uh, and so I completely failed at making the kit. The instructions for the kit were quite poor, but it got me interested enough that I started searching around. I started searching around on the internet. Uh, I found out where our local bead store was. Uh, and I remember so clearly walking into that store for the first time and my mind just kind of went fuzzy and blank. I didn't, there was so much stimulation. I didn't even know what to do. I kind of walked in, I did a slow lap around the entire store, and I walked right back out. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't more than 60 seconds that I was in there because I just didn't even know where to start. And so I went next door, there was a Mexican restaurant next door, I went next door, I had lunch, calmed myself down, <laughs> and I walked back in, and I probably spent hours there, I don't know, I, and I started taking every class that they offered. So I learned all different techniques that, you know, wire working and stringing and design theory classes, and then tons and tons of bead weaving classes. Um, and it was about two years later that I had gotten to the point where they started trying to hire me. And I was still working in high tech at that point. And it was, you know, who wants to leave a high paying job for a really uncertain career, you know. Uh, so it was very scary. But about a year later after that, I, that there's actually a secret dedication uh, in my book. And at the in the book, it says, um, thank you to my boss, Norma, for uh, encouraging me to take the leap from a full-time office worker to, you know, a, a, a beading designer. Uh, that's not the exact wording, but it's the, the rough thing. Well, the trick of that is the truth is that Norma was my boss and she was going to, she came to my desk that day and said that she was going to give me a bad review. Ah. <laughs> I'm a six month review. And this was after I had done like some really incredibly good work for the bit for the company. Um, and I just stewed on that for a while and I went to her later in the day and I said, you know what? Don't bother writing that review tonight. Um, I'm going to go ahead and give my two-week notice. And she said, you know what? Don't worry about two weeks. Why don't you leave at noon on Friday? Oh, two God. days Two days later, I had no job. <laughs> wow. The stars aligned right there. My goodness. Yeah. And, and I truly am thankful for that moment because had she not done that, I don't know that I ever would have had the guts to leave that job. And so, you know, it's something wonderful that came out of a really bad moment. Uh, and like I said, it was years after that before I really got to a point where I could, would have been able to support myself. Now, I've chosen to stay living with my mom or best friends. She's definitely involved every day in the business. Um, and so it works out for us very nicely. 
but uh, yeah, it's people are always like, oh, I want to do what you what you do, and I'm like, you have no idea what it took to get here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it it appears like an overnight success, of course, and it never right. is. And so, okay, so here you are, set free from a high paying job, but. Did you take that job at the bead store or like, how did you, you said it took several years to actually, you know, create something that was going to generate revenue that would actually sustain you. So how did you begin to build a business? You know, I think one of the things that is critical to my success is my ability to pivot and assess what's going on and not just be willing and determined that I'm going to stay in this one lane and this one path. I, I try something out and if it doesn't work, it's like, you know, okay, bumper cars. Okay. I bumped off that wall. Well, let me try over here on this alley. So what I originally had thought was going to happen was I was going to work part-time at the bead store because yes, I did take the job. And then I was going to uh, sell kits that were for, for other designers. Cause at that point I had never designed anything myself in my mm. life. So some of my beading teachers, they were all full-time, had full-time jobs. They didn't have time to make kits and go sell these at beads uh, shows. And I thought, okay, well, I'll make the kits. We'll, you know, split the profits and and that's going to be the business model. And then after I did my first show, which was remarkably successful, successful, and I worked all the finances and I realized that the designer made more sitting at home than I did working my butt off for weeks. I decided that wasn't really a a great business model. (laughs) So uh, I started trying to design myself. That prompted me to start trying to design myself for the first time. And they were all very simple designs. Uh, And at the same time, the owner of the bead store was encouraging me to start teaching some classes at the store. And again, I never taught. So I was terrified, but I decided to take the plunge and do it. And um, within probably two or three classes, I realized, I think I'm pretty good at this. And it got to the point where I was offering six or seven classes a week, and every single one of them would be sold out. Uh, I was definitely their most popular teacher at the bead store. Wow. Um, And then I started applying to teach at national shows just kind of on a whim because it never occurred to me that I would actually get accepted. Uh, I just, you know, I thought it would be a good experience to try it. And so much to my surprise, I got accepted the very first time that I submitted. And so then it was like, Oh no, what do I do now? (laughs) Now I actually have to go teach on this big national level had you been to one of those national shows just to you know visit or walk the show before i had not um but there was one that was coming up before the next teaching gig and so my mom and i made arrangements to go walk that that okay uh so i did at least get a chance to go and look and see you know well what's what's the professional level Level, right The other thing that we wanted to do was have a booth to sell kits at the show. So um, we needed to kind of see what the displays looked like. Right, right. Do research. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And a funny story about my first teaching experience. It was at the Bead and Button Show. And uh, they had, at that time, they had classes in 
two hotels that were adjoining the convention center in Milwaukee. And so there, there would be classes in the hotels, in the convention center. And so you were always moving around to all these places. So I go to teach my very first class and it's in um, one of the hotel rooms and not a hotel room, a conference room in the hotel. So I go to the, to the room and the door is locked. So I have to call security to come open the door. And while I'm standing in the hallway, it's kind of smelling a little smoky. I'm thinking, that's really weird. Where is that smoke smell coming from? And so the security guard comes and he opens up the door to the room and the entire room is filled with smoke. Like you can't even see in it. And he, he like freezes and then he turns around and starts running. And I'm like, wait, what's going on here? In the meantime, I've got, you know, like seven students standing behind me waiting for the door to open to our conference room. Um, so what had ha- ended up happening was the teacher in the room prior to me had been using, had her students using torches and it created a huge smoke effect. And then she shut the door to it, which made it even worse. The vent to the entire hotel was adjacent to this conference room. And so it filled the entire atrium of the hotel smoke. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And I ended up having to uh, hold my class in an open air area in the lobby of the hotel because there was no way we could sit in the classroom. But that is such the lesson of teaching is that there's always these variables that you can't anticipate and you have to just think on your feet and figure it out. Yeah, it was actually a perfect first experience. And I always say, you know, I've heard of trial by fire before, but I just didn't know it was this literal. <laughs> that's hilarious. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. So and I figure yeah, after keep that, I could handle anything. Yeah, <laughs> totally. No, I mean, it, right. That's a great first experience because the next one's going to definitely be easier. Um, um, So let's talk a little bit about the importance of Beat and Button as a show. And we covered when um, it closed. Uh, I think that was last summer. And I can tell you from that post um, on our site, got I don't even know how much traffic and how many comments. It still gets comments. I think people are still Googling it to see what yeah. happened. And so, um, so just talk a little bit, you know, from like the industry side about the importance of that show and, and kind of what you think happened. You know, that show was a career maker. Uh, and it was the pinnacle of bead success. If you were teaching at that show, uh, it gave you cachet. Um, if it, if you were exhibiting at that show, you were exhibiting at the best show in the United States. Uh, it was really well professionally run. Um, you had, in the earlier years, you had students from all over the world. There was a huge contingent that would come from Japan every year. There were quite a few Australians, a ton of Europeans. Uh, and every, so people would come from all over the world for this show. And it was a um, collection of all of the best beading teachers. And when I say beading, I'm also including the metalworking component and the lampworking component of the bead world. All Everybody coming together in one place for seven to ten days. The, the show varied in, in length over the years. So anywhere from seven to ten days. And it was 
what I used to call bead summer camp. You know, you got to see all your friends. You got to make deals with people. You got to see what everybody else was doing, um, what the industry trends were. You got to meet these students and followers from all over the world. So you got that face-to-face interaction. Uh, It was honestly the best week of my year, every year. And so when that was announced last year that uh, not only the magazine was shutting down, but also the show was shutting down, actually the entire company that did both of those things shut down, uh, I'm not ashamed to say I cried because that show has been so pivotal in my life for 15 years. What do you think happened? I mean, it seems like you're not alone in having that feeling. Um, There was a really strong public outcry. And I just, I, it wasn't 100% clear to me in talking with them about why they made this decision. I think there were a number of factors. Uh, The fact that Kalmbach, which was the parent company that did both the Beat and Button show and the magazine, the fact that they were both linked was not helpful because magazines right now are struggling so badly. So I think the magazine portion of the company was kind of a drag for a while on the company. Uh, But honestly, there were other, there's a lot of factors. Um, Overall, shows are gone these days. And this was pre-COVID. People have been turning to the internet for their shopping experiences now. Uh, And it is completely not the same experience. I mean, I've always told that. I even say this in my videos online. I say, you know, I have an online bead store, but if you have a choice, go visit your local bead store first. That should always be your first choice to purchase beads because you can hold them and put colors next to each other. And you get that physical uh, sensation with the beads and buying online is not the same. Now online, of course, the difference is that you have much more choice, a broader choice of what's available. Uh, But it's the same thing with the bead shows. I mean, for me, the bead show was like my favorite shopping because you had such a diverse range of goods there. But over time, with people moving to internet shopping, fewer and fewer came to the shows. Uh, There are also the international people stopped traveling to the U.S. as much. I think some politics things had to do with that. Uh, Then the last and definitely a huge piece of it was that the Beat and Button show kind of got big for its britches in that they started offering too many classes. And it's yet the, the show itself, how many people were coming, was not growing. It was contracting. So you were taking this one pool of money and you're just splitting it between more and more people. And so it became less financially attractive for teachers to come teach. Mm. Uh, so a lot of teachers would show up for these classes and they'd only have three or four students. Right. Well, you know, at that point, the teacher paid to come teach to them. They were not making enough money to cover their travel expenses. And so that actually became a negative. And and eventually teachers stopped being willing to come teach. And that included the big names. 
um, at, at the height of the show, I was teaching 13 classes in 10 days. I did that for two years. And that was, people would say, well, why are you working so hard? You're not being able to come out in the evening and you know go out to dinner with us and go out for drinks and stuff. And I'm like, because I'm making uh, a third of my annual income in these 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> but that that stopped becoming true towards the end because we were no longer filling the classes and classes were getting canceled because they were getting so few people in them. And so uh, they never understood that they needed to tighten the show up. Right. And make it really special and shorter. So that we'd have some scarcity involved. Exactly. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I do think there's a place for online, not online, in-person events, consumer shows like this show was in beating. I just think that, as you said, it needs to be rethought because you're not going to win on, you know, having as many classes as possible. That's not going to be the strategy. And it's the same thing with retailers, right? You're not going to win on inventory because online is going to win. As you said, there's a lot more choices. Online is going to win on inventory. So you need to win on something else. Yeah. And I think that's where like kind of the boutique concept comes in. Uh, a friend recently described my online shop as kind of a boutique shop. It's not as big as some of the other online bead stores. I'm still growing my inventory, but uh, I offer something a little special. It's, you know, stuff that I've handpicked. It's stuff that I've been able to buy when I was on the ground in the Czech Republic from the factories same thing with going to China and being able to hand pick those pieces. It's not just whatever they send me, you know, in the shipment. It's I've picked the strands that I have. Uh, and so I offer a, a different experience than the average large bead shop online. And then, of course, I offer the incredible education component of everything. Right. So, um, and I hope to, and I, I have a very personal connection with my customers and I hope to always keep that. Because it's important to me as much as it is to them. Yeah. And, you know, people do need to realize that shopping online, you're supporting, in this case, a small business. Um, I think yeah. sometimes online, you know, it gets villainized as, you know, like, um, uh, you know, being the destruction of brick and mortar retail and things like that. And it can be. But and this is an instance in which you are, you know, a a teacher and a personality and a designer and by shopping online from you you're there people are supporting you and that you know and you're able to curate the selection for them so that relationship is there and I think that that's really special so did you end up quitting the job at the bead store in order to essentially open an online bead store or what happened there? (laughs) Uh, It actually happened prior to that. Uh, Once I started teaching at the bead and button show, after about two or three years, I started getting uh, bead stores across the country inviting me to come in as a guest teacher. And that's one of the reasons I mentioned bead and button as a career maker. That's where people became, you know, aware of me between the magazines and the shows, teaching at the shows, uh, I I started getting more of a public, um, you know, uh, people started knowing who I was better. And so I started getting these traveling teaching gigs. 
And at that point, I couldn't keep up also with the local uh, teaching. And so that slowly kind of dribbled away. And I shifted completely to doing the travel teaching for about, I'm going to say about seven years. I was doing nothing but the travel teaching. That was my full-time gig. Uh, So how were you on the road like every month? Oh, yeah. Usually twice, at least twice a month. And I mean, I I worked it up one time that I spent about uh, a quarter, 25 to 30% of my year in hotel rooms. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it was exciting. It was fun, but it was also uh, very physically demanding. I mean, there were definitely times when, you know, I would on Thursday would fly out to a new place. I would teach Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Monday, I would fly home. Tuesday and Wednesday, I would do laundry and restock my kits that I was going to sell and get on a plane again on Thursday. <laughs> I mean, I would literally take the stuff out of my suitcase, throw it in the laundry, put it right back in the suitcase and go out again. <laughs> so uh, I was kind of getting, by 2013, I was kind of getting tired of the grind there. I, it's fun for a while, and then it becomes more of a grind. Yeah. Plus, you just miss so much stuff at home. I mean, I kept missing my niece and nephew's birthdays. And, you know, there were all these events that I would never be able to go to because I was always on the road at that time. Um, so that pivot to YouTube, which allowed me to open the online shop, which allowed me to stay home, was perfect timing. Uh, because it was exactly the time that I was going, okay, I need to kind of figure out yet another iteration of Jill Wiseman Designs and figure out something that's more sustainable for the rest of my life. Right. And so did you start then really ramping up the sourcing of, you know, wholesale sourcing of beads for the store? And because that can be, again, we're talking about the production company, um, maybe financial risk, although the way you had it worked out was pretty nifty. But um, (laughs) it's a financial risk, right, to begin to build up inventory. And now, as we said earlier, you've got like a warehouse, um, which is pretty incredible. So um, talk a little bit about that sort of of um, shift and and you're thinking about doing that? Yeah, finding the wholesale sources is definitely um, a never-ending, you know, hunt. Luckily, because I had been creating these kits over the years, I had developed quite a few wholesale sources. I was just buying in quantities that were larger than the average person, but not as large as a bead store. Right. So a lot of them had did give access to designers because someone like me, I was selling a a large quantity of kits. So um, I already kind of had the basics of, of suppliers. Uh, And then it's just been a nonstop. So it's been eight years now since I started the YouTube channel and I'm still adding products to my store at the end of every year. I'm like, well, I do my taxes and I'm like, well, how is it that I like haven't made any money this year above and beyond my salary? And then I realized it's because I'm taking every single dime and I'm turning it back into additional inventory. And I'm finally kind of, after all these years, I'm, I'm close to the point where that's no longer going to be true. I think next year is going to be the first year that I'm going to actually have uh, a profit above my salary. And 
I have determined from the very beginning that I was going to build this business on cash. I did not want to get in huge debt and because it is a financial risk. And what if my ideas failed and the store failed and then I stuck with this huge debt that now I have to, to figure out how to pay. So this has always been a slow, gradual addition of inventory. Um, and it's, it also kind of, I've, I've been able to, I've been able to pace the growth by doing things like throttling my YouTube channel. If I don't release videos for a while, then my sales go down and I have more time to do other things. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. So I can actually adjust based on what my, my job duties need to be. Um, now, interestingly enough, I've actually, I spent a good portion of the last year of this year working on a massive growth plan. I brought in another designer um, with a national name and she was going to be another content provider and also be a video, be able to do video content and teaching. Uh, and we spent the last five months, uh, brought her in from another state. Uh, and we're so excited about all this massive growth that was going to happen in 2022. And we, we've been prepping for that. And after five months, unfortunately, she had a family emergency. She needed to go back home and take care of her mom. And poof, she was gone. <laughs> and I totally understand why she had to leave. But I, and this happened just about, I don't know, six or eight weeks ago. And it kind of put me in a tailspin. I thought, oh, my God, all the plans that I've now made, I have to adjust again, yet again. <laughs> and now what's the new moving forward plan? And what I have decided is it's back to basics. It's getting back to me spending less time on the administrative part of the business. I need desperately personally need to spend more creative time. Um, I feel the need to do that. It's, you know, the running of the business has taken over the time that I used to spend creatively. Right. And so emotionally, I just, I need to get that back in my life. So I'm going to refocus on me doing video content, um, bringing in staff to do, kind of do some more of this back end administrative stuff. And we're going to go back to the basic, what my original plan was. Uh, and it's going to work. You know, it's going to be great. And eventually I'll find the right person to come in and be a co-video personality with me. Um, but for right now, I'm it. And so I just and that's OK. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I, I love doing it. So it just gives me permission to get back to doing that. Yeah, I think back to basics is a great plan. And I agree that eventually, right, the right person comes along and it, the timing might not be ideal. Um, but, right. but if, but you really know it when, when you see it, you know, that this person would be absolutely a huge asset to this business. And it's, thr it's thrilling when they're able to do it. But, um, but yeah, it really has to be the right person. And, and, you know, in an industry like this, that's a very specialized skill set. So you need to 
to just wait. Yeah, you you can't just go out on, you know, <laughs> a job board. And find right. Person. That's so, right. It's somebody who yeah. you're going to end up knowing and coming across in some in For some sure. way. Um, yeah, yeah, so interesting. And so um, I'm assuming in the beginning, you were based out of your home. Um, and yep. then did you move into your current office space? Is that like, you know, how, how did that happen? This is the third iteration of office. Space. Okay. So we did indeed, when when we started the YouTube channel, it was just me and my mom and we were working in our living room. And uh, it was about three months after the YouTube channel started when I was getting so many questions and comments from, from viewers saying, well, where do I go to buy the beads? And I would say, well, you go to your local bead store. Uh-huh. And they would say, I don't have a local bead store, which is true of a lot of, you know, the, the country, if not the world. Uh there's fewer and fewer local bead stores. So then yeah, I would ours closed here. Ours in town closed. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, more than 60% of locally owned bead stores have closed in the last decade. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so then I, I would send them to my favorite online sources and kind of towards the end of the year, it's been about three months since the channel was open. One day my mom turns to me and she says, well, you know, we've got all these beads from when we make the kits. Why don't we sell them some beads? And I love to remind her of that on a regular basis, that it was her idea (laughs) to sell them the beads because uh, that just created the snowball. And so we started selling some beads, just basically overstock of what we had in the house. It went over incredibly well. Within another six months, we had so many beads in the house that you could barely move. And that's the point at which I went, no, we've got to move out of this space because this is just, I can't stand living in these conditions anymore. So we, I, I uh, rented a 1,600 square foot office space. And we managed to stay in that space only for two years before we outgrew it. And then we moved into 3,300 square feet. And we were there for about four years. I will say that that last year, we were like a bead hoarder nightmare. <laughs> like with the little tiny aisles, you could barely fit through and that kind of thing because we were so had so much stuff at that point. And so this past February is when we moved into the 6,000 square foot space. And so we've been here nine months. And I'm already starting to see all of that nice, beautiful open space kind of gradually shrink away. (laughs) Uh, I, you know, I will walk into this place some mornings and I look around at all the beads and all the people. And I think, how did, how did this happen? (laughs) Where did this come from? (laughs) Did I really buy all those beads? (laughs) is the weight of all of this business on my shoulders? And the answer to all of that is yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, so so uh, if I stop and think about it, it can be a little overwhelming. Um, but it turns out one of the benefits of maybe not being the best artist in the world is that I'm a really good business person and I enjoy it. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky that both sides of my brains fire just enough that it can work well together. Yeah. And, and business so, is very creative. You know, that is a, it's all about creative problem solving, just the same way art is. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, 
it's that learning um, not only yourself and what you're good at and then learning to hire people to fill in yeah. your the things that you aren't great at and uh, and definitely being able to see that you need to pivot and figuring out how to pivot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 100%. That happens all the time. Totally. If I had stayed in the same lane, I probably still would not be in the in the bead world. Yeah, that that there's a risk tolerance involved in entrepreneurship that you have to sustain. As you said, when yeah. you when you look at it all, it can be overwhelming. And I think that that's, that's really true. Um, and I wanted to talk or touch on uh, what happened recently <clears throat> with um, Swarovski. They oh, yeah. announced and again, we, um, we had one of our writers uh, write a piece covering this news. And again, I mean, the beating community is passionate. They came out and <laughs> that post did, I think it performed better than any article we wrote that year. Um, so it, it's so fascinating because um, it's to see the passion there. But Swarovski made this announcement, I guess, kind of rolled it out slowly and, and somewhat poorly, it sounds like, yeah. uh, but they were no longer going to provide crystals to the sort of craft sector. Right. Yeah, they... It was very poorly rolled out. Um, I woke up one day, and this was about a year ago, um, maybe just a little bit more, to a bunch of people posting on Facebook that Swarovski was no longer going to sell crystals to the DIY market. And I went, I don't believe that. And then it turns out that this information, as I kind of dug around more, it was coming from Australia. And it seemed like these, all these people in Australia who were selling Swarovski had gotten this announcement. And I thought, that's so weird. Are they going to just stop selling to Australia? Why on earth would they just pick, you know, a region and not sell to them? And the poor Australians got very upset at us all on Facebook because everybody was accusing them of lying that, you know, that they were wrong, that this was not going to happen because who could conceive of Noah Swarovski in the beating world? You know, I just, I still can't conceive of it and yet it's here. Um, so then about a week later, all of a sudden Europe started getting the information that they were going to be cut off. And interestingly enough, they had a different cutoff date. Like uh, with Australia, they were going to have six months. And then in Europe, they were going to have nine months. And then finally, about two weeks later, the U.S. got the information. And I walked around in shock for weeks going, I just don't even know how to deal with this. Swarovski has been integral to many of my designs. It's what sells the kits, the designs that use Swarovski. People love their sparkle. Uh, it's been just the biggest shockwave through the DIY community. Um, so they had given the U S till the end of September. And so what has happened in the bead part of the industry, because of course this affects other DIY segments also, even the nails people, all the people who put flat back crystals on nails, they're cut off from all of this now too. So that was another huge segment. Um, the dance and costuming industry, some of those people are being able to sign a brand agreement with Swarovski where they're going to be able to continue to buy Swarovski, but not call it Swarovski. <laughs> oh, wow. And I thought that was a weird little thing too. 
but if you are a retailer of Swarovski, if you're doing any kind of reselling, you can't, you're not eligible to sign that brand control agreement. Wow. So for me, Swarovski is gone. And um, what a lot of stores did, because I've been in contact with uh, the CEO of one of the major wholesalers in the U.S. of Swarovski Beads. Uh, she and I have talked a lot through this whole process. And she said, really, what ha has happened for the last year is that people were stocking up on Swarovski while they could. And I personally took a different tact. I basically stopped buying Swarovski. And instead, I started buying Preciosa Crystal, which is a Czech crystal brand, which is almost as good as Swarovski, maybe a hair bit less quality. But it would really take a discerning eye to know that. And... So I decided that if Swarovski is going away, then I need to I need to stock up an inventory in the new crystal, you know, option. And that has kind of put me ahead of the curve as yeah. far as right now, because I do have the full line of three millimeter and four millimeter bicones and Preciosa and very few other online bead stores have even started creating their inventory of Again, it's, so, this is about pivoting and yeah. thinking on your feet, creative problem solving, creating a strategy and yeah. regrouping. And as you said, if you had stayed on that same track that you were on, you never would have opened a bead store. You never would have done this. So you have to, you know... Um, to look at each of these problems that arises and you never know where they're going to come from or when they're going to come and then um, figure out what to do and keep going. Yes. Yeah. And just to be open to possibilities and really paying attention to even business trends in the marketplace. I mean, I've gotten a lot of really great ideas from the knitting and quilting worlds. Uh, you know, the knitting world embraced video a lot sooner than the beading world did. That's where I got my idea to do. Video. Right. And that made me one of the founders of, you know, YouTube video on beading. So not being afraid to look at other ideas, uh, other industries and follow their lead. Yeah. I love that. That's, that's amazing. And, and, you know, within our community at craft industry Alliance, we have, we have people from all different, um, craft niches. And I think there's something really lovely about the intermixing and, you know, being able to sort of see, oh, what, what is happening in, you know, in, in, uh, quilting fabric and, and how is that impacting them and, and what could I learn from that? So, um, that's a, a one, one of the wonderful things about sort of being in the community as a whole. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to make sure we get to your recommendations because you've got a, a couple on here that are just really great. And, um, <laughs> but this has been so interesting and I just really appreciate all your like openness and honesty about how you've built your, your business, um, Jill. So the first recommendation you have is um, photo room app for product photo editing. And I don't have this app. I actually found this app um, from an Instagram ad. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, that, all, all of those ads, they work. Uh, it does an incredible job. If you're, you need a white background on a product photo, you can take your, your photo just using your camera. You import it into the Photo Room app. It scans it, and it does a lovely job of taking out the entire background around that oh. uh, that piece. And then not only does it do that, but it gives you 
an entire library of backgrounds that you can then put in behind it. Um, Everything from really funky to very, you know, staid to, to, I mean, it's just, it's super incredible. And I know that there are a bunch of apps out there that do this, but this one um, with jewelry pieces, a lot of times you have like a, a bunch of tight cutouts and things like that, little tiny spots that some of these apps don't do a really good job of pulling uh, the background out on. And this one definitely does the very best uh, job of doing that. That's amazing. Okay, so Photo Room app is what it's called if people want to go and check that out. That is a great suggestion because really good product photography is incredibly important when you're selling online. So thank you for that. And you also wanted to recommend CBD for anxiety. Yes. I mean, when you're a business owner, you always have anxiety, Go, you know. Or, you or do. <laughs> you find yourself and, awake in the middle of the night doing business things in your absolutely. mind. Yes. Yep. And so um, there was a time a couple of years ago where I had such bad anxiety that I was going, the business was going through a rough spot and I had such bad anxiety, I was getting chest pains. And uh, so I started taking some CBD oil capsules, uh, just 10 milligrams is all it takes for me. I'm kind of a lightweight and it would get rid of that, that chest pain and the worst of the anxiety in 15 minutes. Um, So it has been huge for me because when I kind of start feeling myself spiraling out of control, my mind is spinning, that kind of thing, I can just take one of those uh, capsules and I know that I'm going to calm down within the next 15 minutes. So, um, and of course, CBD is non-psychotropic, so there's no, you're not going to get high or anything. It's literally just that ingredient that calms you down. I think it's so important to find ways to manage stress um, mm-hmm. because it it is really stressful to have the weight of this business on your shoulders. And um, it's I, that is definitely something I have struggled with as well. So that's a good recommendation. And then finally, yeah. you have a very nice one for me, which is you <laughs> wanted to recommend the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. That's so sweet. Yes. Well, you know, what's funny is I, I've never listened to it until you had asked me to be on the podcast. And That's awesome. So uh, I, I went and listened to several episodes and it was so inspiring, but also getting very practical tips too. Um, and so again, you know, talking about taking things from other industries or un- other companies, for instance, one of the things that was mentioned was... Um, Zach, who does his little five-minute good morning video on Instagram every day. I thought that was a lovely way to connect with his people. And I'm uh, Facebook is my primary social media outlet, and I'm going to do something similar on Facebook because I just thought that that was such a simple way to have a daily touch point with your with your customers. Um, so I'm ta- I, I literally, as I've been listening to the podcast, I have a note pad next oh. to me and I'm writing <laughs> notes to myself of, oh, I love this way of, oh, well, this woman was sending out a video. Uh, actually, I, I, I take it back. It was, it was Zach again, who was sending out the video of how to make the mini quilt as his thank you for signing up for my newsletter right. instead of the traditional discount. Again, I thought that was an incredible idea. Yeah. That would be something that would be very applicable to my industry as well. 
Totally. There's so much collective wisdom. And I think it is helpful to hear those interviews from people who are within the craft niche, because, you know, what works for one probably would work for another, because really what we're doing is helping other people express themselves creatively um, in their spare time. And so, you know, that, that it probably, if it works for improvisational quilting, it very well may work for quilt, for beading. So that's really, um, that's great to hear. Well, Jill, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoy talking with you. Oh, I appreciate being asked. This has been very fun uh, to share this story. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by the Academy for Virtual Teaching. The Academy for Virtual Teaching is a vibrant online community hosting informative dialogues about our profession, practice teaching sessions, monthly live roundtables, guest seminars, and more, all designed to help you become a more proficient, profitable, and professional online teacher. One of the centerpieces of this community is the Virtual Teaching Masterclass, an in-depth, comprehensive course of study into all the technical, administrative details involved in offering virtual workshops. Transform your in-person classes into amazing and profitable virtual courses. This masterclass is designed to get you quickly up and running as proficiently, profitably, and as professionally as possible. Head over to academyforvirtualteaching.com right now for a two-week trial that includes free access to Virtual Teaching 101, an introduction to what virtual teaching is all about. We would love to have you join us. Thank you so much to the Academy for Virtual Teaching. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.